and welcome to Contourcast. My name is Kat Boyd and I'm joined with my lovely co-host David Jameson. How's it going? <laughs> my turn this time. <laughs> um, we've got a special guest for you today on the pod um, which we're both very excited about. Um, it's um, from the po- another podcast which you might listen to, Alpha Bunga Bunga. Um, Really, I think I tweeted something like the only politics show worth listening to and got absolutely roasted by a bunch of um, <laughs> other really nice podcast people <laughs> to Scottish politics. One of the many <laughs> great podcasts. Yeah. Others are available. Yeah. Other, others are available, but we're joined tonight with Alex Hoakley. Um, is that a good enough pronunciation? That's fine. I'm not picky. Um, and that's that's pretty close. Um, yeah. Okay, good. Um, so, yeah, thanks for coming on the pod. I'm delighted to be here. Looking forward to this. Um, so the reason that we wanted to get you on is because you wrote a great article um, back in June, um, which was kind of like very much one of the few voices that were putting forward these ideas is actually I'm going to admit it's quite nippy to be discussing this subject on the podcast this episode because it's actually only today that some of my friends have started speaking to me again after I said to them that maybe white privilege wasn't a very useful term like back in June so I'd said, you know, maybe that's not so useful. And uh, at least one of my friends hasn't spoken to me since then and got back in touch today. So, I mean, apologies. I'm about to go in a Coventry again. Well, if I, if I can do anything, it's uh, ruin friendships. So, you know, I'm very proud of the achievement. <laughs> um, so the piece in Damage magazine, um, The Triumph of American Idealism, um, really focused on the global spread of Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and it looked at how they, they show an Americanization of people like almost like LARPing as American um, and that it's all built around the concept of wokeness, which is obviously one of America's greatest uh, exports to Britain. David and I have talked about that on the pod before. Um, so, yeah, we just wanted to kick off with a chat about your article. Can I, I mean, I think that the reason that the article caught um, the attention of a lot of people was it was one of those articles that um, uh, nailed down something that people were vaguely aware of, but didn't have the words for, you know, or the right structure for describing it. Something people had been aware of for a long time. So obviously Black Lives Matter um, demonstrated that general phenomenon, that kind of political Americanization. Um, very, you know, in a very kind of explosive way, all of a sudden, all around the world, as you say in the article, in the West, but also even beyond the West, um, people were engaging in a form of politics which moved beyond um, sort of traditional forms of solidarity and almost invited people to reimagine themselves as actors in the American paradigm, the American cultural and political paradigm. And I think a lot of people have noticed this um, for a long time. I'll tell you when I first became aware of it, which was around the time of the student movements, 2010, 2011. Um, and this would be in, in, in Scotland. And I noticed, you know, what a, a version of politics that people would go on to describe as woke. You know, there wasn't really the language, that, yeah. that language for it at the time. And I noticed that it incorporated both a body of political ideas, which felt very alien to me coming from a kind of more traditional socialist standpoint but combined that with a language and a cultural idiom which felt equally kind of alien so I'd be in like a student occupation of a university building and there would be what seemed to me to be like strange rituals going on people sitting in circles and criticizing their own behavior and criticizing each other's behavior but also whenever they spoke about politics they literally um gained not so much american accents as that upward inflection mm-hmm. you know what i mean um and that makes me feel really uncomfortable uh talking about politics it's is the not okay that is not okay it's not it's not okay and that's that's not okay right and 
when they stop talking about politics, they return to their domestic accent, to their domestic mm-hmm. way of talking. And at the time, I was totally confused. I had no idea what was going on here. What I didn't understand at the time was that people only a few years younger than me had grown up in a different cultural environment where they had absorbed the politics by social media. And in social media in the Anglosphere, the Anglosphere is totally culturally dominated by the American sort of experience. Um, I mean, is there something that you had noticed long before this summer and the global explosion of, of BLM? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that, David. And actually what Kat was saying about perhaps the article putting into words what people had felt for a while, but not really brought to consciousness. I was in that same boat because it's actually an article that I'd probably be meaning to write for, if not a decade, at least sort of five, five, seven, eight years. Um, for the same reason, actually, and I'm, I'm glad that David brought up that example of uh, around kind of 2011, 2012, because for me, that was when I first caught on to something which seemed distinct. And it was, and I think the timing is really important. I'll come back to why, but it was around probably maybe just after the big student demonstrations in, in the UK. I mean, I was a student in London at the time. Um, and what struck me was that suddenly, like on Twitter, or on Facebook, you suddenly had these arguments about what was then the immediate new kind of woke orthodoxy, woke avant la lettre, really. It was not called woke, as you said, um, but of cultural liberalism or postmodern politics, however you want to call it, uh, which was around fourth wave feminism, I guess, what it's what it's now referred to as fourth wave feminism, um, where I can't even remember what provoked the argument, but I was being, you know, you get accused of, um, or something gets tar- uh, called rape culture, which, you know, basically a, 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 a sideways lascivious glance at a woman gets called, reinterpreted as rape culture, uh, a complete collapse of, of categories goes on there, um, and the kind of hysterical rhetoric where you're not able to get a, get a discussion going about what is actually at stake. Um, and it was like, wow, this is like what I had read about, not experienced directly, but what I had read about 1980s, 1990s US campus wars. And for me, it was like, wow, this is like an American importation, stuff that I maybe have seen in movies or read about, um, but which is I'm experienced now in London in 2012, 2013. In fact, it's interesting because that it, it was maybe a year before um, Mark Fisher wrote his famous Vampire Castle piece, which came out at the end of 2013. And I remember when that came out, I thought, ah, maybe this is the beginning of the end of uh, what we now call wokeness, because I thought if someone's calling it out and putting it into words, maybe this is kind of, you know, peaking. Um, this is this is us being able to look back already immediately retrospectively and say this is something that happened rather than that than is happening. Um, and I think the moment is telling, and this is why I think the timing is interesting, because it comes you know, what happened uh, a few years before? What happened in the preceding period uh, before 2012? Uh, you had the global financial crisis and you had Occupy, which for all its many problems and many limitations, it brought back into popular discourse uh, majoritarian politics, the question of majority interests against a, against a, a narrow elite. Um, so there are many problems with it. You know, even 99% is a problematic way of looking at politics that joins the middle class together with the working class and so on. But nevertheless, this was after a decade of politics being dominated either by kind of ecologism where, you know, no, you can't have more stuff. You can't aspire to a better life because there are environmental limits to everything or uh, to minoritarian politics of, of various forms. Um, and so this was a moment of people going, no, it's us collectively together. It's the vast majority. Um, and we have interests which are uh, inimical to inimical to what the elite can provide and to the system that currently governs us. Okay, great. That felt like a step forward. And then suddenly that gets kind of poleaxed by this kind of new identitarian discourse in, in around 2012, 2013, um, at the time around kind of more feminist uh, kind of feminist tropes or feminist kind of ways of interpreting it, um, which, you know, today it's it's kind of race, which which takes its place. But I think that the important thing there is, is one, the timing that it's after this kind of seeming emergence of a potential socialist or left politics, at least um, after after a long time of abeyance. Um, and the fact that it takes a, minor, a minoritarian form. Um, but I guess to come back to where we started, which is why Americanization. Um, and for me, what bothered me you know, in 2012 and continued to kind of niggle at me here and there was that whenever this stuff came back, it was very American. And as it, David's example is great. You know, it's in the language that you can perceive this. And I noted in my article about how 
uh, a friend told me how in Denmark they're using uh, phraseology which feels imported from American English, which doesn't really make sense in Denmark. Um, I see it in Brazil where, you know, it's kind of seemed to be kind of chic to use English, you know, in, in France as well. Um, and so that's one that already kind of gives evidence uh, to, or is evidence of where these ideas are coming from, where, you know, wh where um, this stuff is being imported, that it's not something which dialogues with kind of domestic conditions and is an organic outgrowth of certain particular contradictions in that society, but it's something which is being imported from the internet, really. I mean, I think that, I think that's dead interesting. I also wonder if like part of the timing of this, like the, the ground politically has been made more fertile because of the ways in which people are radicalized and what they are radicalized around. So for like, for myself and David and like plenty of our other comrades, we were radicalized primarily around the war, primarily around the war in yeah. Iraq, on international issues, and also on the question of Palestine um, and mm -hmm. the occupation in Gaza. So these were the two main issues that we, that all of our political focus was on. And from the word go, you are bam straight into a lesson about anti-imperialism and anti-imperialist struggle and the like international solidarity is like maybe I would understand it. Um, and, and the importance of that. So you're, you're brought right in to that um, discussion about anti-imperialism, which I think is has created a quite a different perspective for like us and mm -hmm. a lot of other people who were politicized during that time. Um, but what I think is interesting in your article uh, when it talks about um, international solidarity or the BLM protests internationally not necessarily being solidarity um it's not that it's not that i don't agree with you i just i think that there are probably people who think that that is solidarity um who yeah, think yeah. that they are displaying solidarity rather than just you know acting out their idea of like americanism and do you know i mean subconsciously like i i do think that people think that is inter international solidarity and it's a solidarity gesture what I noticed really quickly was um, how fast the the discourse in Scotland became about um, like one particular uh, murder, the murder of Sheikh Ubayu by police in custody in Scotland, but it was framed entirely around the like American language and the kind of like woke discourse, like it was framed all around that. Um, and I think that true international solidarity has probably waned um, significantly. So I think there's also a vacuum there, um, particularly on the question of Palestine. So, you know, in the 70s, that would be like a actual trade union issue to talk yeah. about what is happening in Chile, what is happening in Palestine, the industrial links that are there, you know, the Israel-Palestine being like a kind of weak link in the chain of US imperialism. Like, and that would be quite a normal thing. Whereas now it's treated as a sort of like a fringe issue um, talking too much about internationalism. Let's talk about what's going on domestically. Um, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to make that point. No, I think that's right. And I mean, you know, maybe this is a point we can come back to, but the, you know, internationalism presumes the national at some level. And what is evident in this whole moment um, and, you know, the what I call the global BLM is just one instance of it. Um, it's obviously something much wider, but is the what's notable there is the absence of of the national in any sense of of a kind of uh, engagement and dialogue with with national conditions, um, which is what is really the the biggest problem with the, with all of it. And maybe we can come back to to discussing that. I thought I mean one thing I wanted to pick up on is that you you mentioned that uh, you know twenty thirteen. I mean we must be about all about the same age, similar age anyway. That two thousand three was really important. You know the, you know the Iraq War and opposition to it. Um, and what was, that became, that was a really important moment in kind of the history of, of contemporary Europe, because that was a moment of the attempt at a construction of a European, uh, European sphere, European civilization, or a European um, sort of way of, of conceiving oneself, uh, which was built in opposition to the United States. Uh, so the United States was, was built up as the American other. And so that was a form of you know, for all that it was about, certainly from a left-wing perspective, about 
international solidarity, about internationalism, about non-interventionism, about anti-imperialism. It got wrapped into a broader mainstream project of defining Europe as against uh, the United States. And even among in left, even in left-wing protests, there was a current of anti-Americanism there, which was problematic, a kind of way of essentializing American and treating it not just treating the problem not just as one of American foreign policy and American imperialism, but one about the essence of what America is, that it is that the American people themselves are you know, aggressive, too violent, um, don't, aren't able to engage in dialogue, um, aren't able to have respect for other people's cultures, uh, stampede over every, all, everything, etc. right? Um, funnily enough, because that question of not wanting to stampede over everything, right, not letting this kind of American juggernaut just decide that the world is, is theirs, um, is something that completely disappears by, you know, 2020 with the global BLM, where there it's like, no, we're, we're actually happy to be fully American. You know, there's, there's, uh, they've lost a sense of this outside. So what I wanted to do in the article, but part of it was not just re remarking upon the kind of global BLM and the kind of globalization of woke, woke neoliberalism of woke politics, um, but also of looking at how this kind of dialectic, dialectic of Americanism and anti-Americanism shifts over, over different periods of time. Um, and so, you know, the 2000s is a really important period where, you know, there's a whole micro publishing industry of books about, you know, Americans are from Mars and Europeans are from Venus, all this kind of stuff. Um, and a deliberate effort from Europeans, from to, to, to and, you know, from, from European elites, from, from EU bodies and so on to construct uh, a European uh, sense of self as against the, the American other, um, which, is, uh, which is distinct both from the 19 kind of, let's say kind of the Cold War uh, European anti-Americanism and from what comes after in kind of the woke period today. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. So I was thinking about this before, um, before we started recording, um, how like liberals would perceive America like at the time of the war in Iraq. So one of the kind of like the famous sort of uh, like liberal sayings was that idea of, you know, I love the American people, dead friendly, lovely people, but it's the state I have a problem with. It's this policy mm -hmm. I have a problem with. And actually now that has completely flipped on its head, like with Trump. Like I think the election of Trump really flipped that narrative, which was, no, the American people are dumb, stupid, violent, crazed, can't be trusted, elect all sorts of nutters into the White House. And actually liberals just love the deep state. Like look at the, um, yeah. the big love fest for like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Do you know what I mean? Like liberal, like liberals in Scotland love the deep state. Like I remember uh, members of my family saying, oh, you know, I love the American people, but it's, it's the government that's the problem. Do you know what I mean? And now it's like, it's, it's been flipped. Maybe maybe Biden well, rescue it. <laughs> so no, but this this is interesting. I was thinking about this before as well. That the opposition, like around the, in the two thousands, and that episode of of anti Americanism, was um, you know in the United States you had the mainstream, the establishment in favor of the war, and you had rebels outside of it opposing the war. But it was a marginal position. Um, you know there was still kind of widespread opposition, but it was still a marginal position. Uh, with respect to the American establishment uh, and, and indeed the American mainstream kind of in, in cultural terms. What is different about now and about if you say, if you take sort of our Iraq, contemporary Iraq war, which is to say uh, American police killing black people, right, unarmed black people, what is, uh, what is the relationship there? There is a situation where it's not um, us maybe in solidarity with Americans opposing the American empire, um, but it's an identification with uh, with the American establishment against Trump, Trump being the, the kind of avatar of, uh, of backwards American racism um, and police uh, brutality and so on. And so that's a complete inversion. So before, you know, it would be, you know, you're on the streets of London protesting in 2003, you know, as, as I was, um, and you're, you know, you're not in solidarity with uh, the editor of uh, the Washington Post. In fact, the editor of the Washington Post is part of the enemy because he's the one, um, you know, kind of pretending, pre presenting American imperialism as a force for democracy, um, which is a complete inversion of what's happening now. Now, the editor of, you know, the New York Times or whatever is uh, is an ally in the fight against uh, against American racism, against Trumpism, against uh, all these backward American things, which uh, which we imagine are our problems as well, or, or something that that you know we inhabit as well. 
I remember at the time of the Iraq war, um, there was a moment because, of course, you know, as you say, there was this European bloc attempt to dissociate themselves from the excesses of, you know, American imperialism. And momentarily, people like Jacques Chirac became unlikely or perhaps likely heroes of parts of the left. I remember people marching with um, French baguettes, for example. But that, I, I suppose, a uh, a version of that sentiment did eventually re-emerge with the kind of people's vote uh, type stuff. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point you make about the national and the international. Because I think uh, an, an older tradition of internationalism has been kind of subsumed um, by this stuff, but it starts with a recognition of national peculiarities. So um, a perfect example would be the rise of BLM uh, as a global phenomenon, but one which didn't differentiate itself particularly nationally from, from, from country to country, also saw the decline of um, popular support for the Palestinian cause, which people forget, you know, only four or five years ago, there was a march of half a million people in London in defense of uh, the Palestinian people. That campaign declined. And there's an obvious parallel there in that the Palestinian people their cultural experience is extremely differentiated from ours. And, you know, elements in the media and the establishment have been very good at using that to suggest that one's association with the Palestinians must have an ulterior motive. In, in the case in Britain, this must be racism uh, towards the Jewish community. Whereas um, Black Lives Matter, you know, politicians in Scotland love Black Lives Matter, right? Uh, the, the case that Kat mentioned about Sheikh Ubayo is a fascinating one. So he died several years ago, um, and uh, the response from the public was very muted, it has to be said. He was killed in a small Scottish town uh, called Kakodi. Um, and it was only once the George Floyd protests began that campaigners um, used the momentum behind that issue to to reach you know to bring back shaker bias case into the uh, into the popular imagination which is very telling in itself that you need the american lens to rehabilitate domestic racism but it remains the fact that the kind of the most culturally structuring form of racism in scottish society because just reading through your article you've got lots of kind of great snippets of national situations where the movement was imported into very, you know, into national contexts where it shouldn't really fit. In the Scottish national context, anti-Irish racism and anti-Catholic bigotry has long been the kind of structural racism that runs right from the state mm. through civil society, has been extremely historically important in Scottish society. And politicians don't discuss it because politicians want votes and electoral machines from organisations like the Orange Lodge you know, a Protestant supremacist organization. At the time of the BLM protests, a Protestant loyalist mob attacked George Square, the sort of main square in Glasgow, uh, on the belief that Black Lives Matter protesters were going there to attack the statues. The attack the World War I cenotaph, I believe, it was never gonna happen. But people in the media reported this as an anti-Black Lives Matter demonstration, mm -hmm. you know, Everyone knew what the real character uh, of, of that politics was. But Scottish politicians, for example, and Scottish police officers, who would never mention something like the existence of Protestant supremacist organisations in the country, were all taking the knee, were all yeah. saying we are all George Floyd and all this kind of stuff. And it strikes me that this kind of politics creates a situation where it's very easy for domestic elites to get off the hook and to ignore even questions like domestic racism simply by you know parroting the kind of language and the, and the, and the ideas of, of American movement. Yeah, no, I mean, it's completely evasive. It provides them with a great instrument with which to, to evade any accountability for, for domestic issues. Now, it's interesting. I mean, one of the major kind of recurring criticisms I got for the article was that, um, so what, in the sense of, so what, if it, you know, if something good comes out of it, right? If, if people are provoked into confronting issues at home, then so much the better, you know, it opens people's eyes. And, and you know, if it were only that, then I would say, absolutely, you know, that's that's good. And, you know, you had a case in, in France, right? Where the Black Lives Matter protests were tied to the Justice Pour Adama campaign, which is kind of a long running thing around 
um, around, again, a case of police brutality. And so, um, you know, and if it leads people to focus on their own issues like, uh, you know, uh, brutality against migrants and, uh, you know, the European, like Fortress Europe, for example, then, you know, so much the better, right? I think um, that needs to be that needs to be done. Um, but I think the, the, the problem is, is that it's not done through any kind of systematic understanding of what is actually at stake in those countries. And I think that's maybe the problem because it gets reinterpreted through lens with, uh, through a lens, which firstly, it's probably not really applicable in the United States and maybe we can come to talk about that, but it becomes even more problematic when it gets diffused into different cultures where it really has no root whatsoever. So to talk about white supremacy in a kind of complete majority white society doesn't really get at what the real contradictions are in that country. Um, it doesn't really unlock the key. I mean, I think you mentioned something about, about kind of being the key contradiction um, in relation, or at least certainly like sectarianism in Scotland or, you know, kind of anti-Catholic bigotry being, being a key thing. But when it gets all reinterpreted as an amorphous racism and not just amorphous, but one which is uh, interpreted in completely idealist terms where racism is just seen as bad ideas, um, something against, you know, something which we're all against, obviously, but, you know, but why, for what, what is actually the substance of that racism? How is it structured? Um, indeed, in many places, is racism even the right term to use? You know, like the, the Scottish example that you gave, it, it obviously isn't. Um, it isn't an appropriate lens. So what, and, and to kind of relate it back to a, a second criticism, which I got, which is, yeah, what, what's the problem with, you know, having a global civilization, we're all kind of internationalists, maybe cosmopolitans, um, for all that, that that term now is so loaded as to, uh, I certainly wouldn't want to use it. But, you know, we want a global civilization, you know, we're, we're, we're socialists, we're internationalists, etc. So what is the problem? Um, what is the problem there? And the problem is not simply the homogenization, um, or the fact that we might be interested in one another's goings on, you know, that we are interested in what's going on in the US, um, that we care, that they might care likewise, and that, um, that there might be a, a kind of interpenetration of different cultures and national civilizations, or not national civilizations, but national uh, entities. Um, the, the problem is that the, the ideas that get transmitted are not something like, uh, you know, Marxism being spread as sort of an idea uh, in, across the world, um, you know, in the 20th century, but is a very flattening idea, which, so the problem is not just the homogenization, but the homogenization happens through its particular content which itself is homogenizing. So the notion of white supremacy, um, of the whole privilege discourse and all that, um, that's, that itself kind of flattens out any kind of differences and not just flattens out national differences, but flattens any domestic structures as well. So that racism can become a problem in any given society and it's always the same form. It's, um, it, it, and, and in a kind of, I guess the, the ideas and the ideal type is taken from the US. So it's a, a white majority oppressing a black minority. So, you know, you get absurdities like, I've even seen it occasionally in Brazil, but I hear that in South Africa, it's, it's sometimes said where, said with more frequency, uh, you know, speaking about the black, about minorities, you know, in South Africa, which is a black majority society, you know, so the, the, the structures that you're engaging with are completely different to, to the ideas that you're proposing. Uh, and that's what's, what, what that's what the real problem is and that's what's really at stake here and what is why I think the critique that I made isn't just one we're saying that you know maybe this is a bit dumb but why it's dangerous why it's politically problematic um, and politically impedes us from being able to progress uh, is that it, it's it's kind of in some way self-sabotaging because it, it stops us from addressing what our real problems are and and diverts us onto this um, kind of imaginary fantastic playing field um, which is basically Twitter, the internet, the kind of um, global discourse machine of, uh, of social media. And that's where, that's where we're playing rather than in the real world uh, in our determinate national societies where we live. Well, I think that this is where it becomes very interesting to me in the Scottish context. Um, I don't know if you ever think about Scotland, probably not. Probably not, not, not enough, no, no. <laughs> Um, because like our nationalist movement or the leaders of our nationalist movement in the SNP, they, uh, David's right, like they love this American discourse about racism. 
like honestly like it's like very much adopted by our political leaders and in my experience so I lived in the Basque country for a while there was a real resistance to Americanization of their politics there like within the left nationalist groupings which I always found very interesting um you know being a big fan of American culture I love jazz what can I say um but in our nationalist movement like most nationalist movements in Europe have been co-opted by the right. Like ours is definitely like a kind of civic nationalism. Like the government we have right now in Holyrood is probably the most left wing that we've ever had. Uh, it was a low bar to start with, but it's probably the most left wing. But um, they are, I see them as actively adopting this American um, discourse around racism and racism what that looks like because it's comfortable for them it's comfortable for them it wasn't even that long ago that expressions of international solidarity or irishness were essentially criminalized around the particularly um controversial piece of football legislation where you know young guys wearing like palestine t-shirts were being arrested by police and um, where songs about irishness um, you know, would cause like uh, a group of people to be charged. Like this is this is the same government who are doing these things, and we never really get an opportunity to expose those contradictions here. Um, so I think that there is a there is a place for um, like the the left approach to the nation state to be part of the tools that fight against this kind of like dangerous Americanization of our politics. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And some engagement with the nation, I think, is necessary. In fact, I think if I have a critique of the left, I mean, certainly in Europe and maybe to a certain extent in the United States as well, uh, is that it is founded, you know, the kind of contemporary, maybe postmodern left, it's founded on a flight from the nation that cosmopolitanism has come in uh, to stand in place of internationalism. And those are distinct things. Uh, and it's important to understand that internationalism is based on solidarity, on each recognizing the other's struggle, but that its struggle is not necessarily exactly the same thing, but that, uh, that we're united in, in, in a struggle and pointing towards a similar direction, but from very different places, perhaps. Um, and cosmopolitanism kind of assumes that we inhabit the same sort of space. Um, and again, you know, kind of discourse mediated through social media, through the internet, make, kind of misleads us into thinking that perhaps uh, we, we, this is all the same space. Um, but the fact is that societies and capitalism is still structured in, in a large, to a large extent, and politics certainly is, at, at the national level. Um, so a, a re-engagement with the nation, certainly with the nation state, and maybe even with the nation, uh, I think would be an important step. I mean, it's certainly clear with Brexit, which you know, obviously I've followed more closely than um, Scottish nationalist politics. Um, uh, probably, I think more about the Basque country actually than I do about Scotland. The Basque country is one of my favorite places, so I, I do think about that quite a lot. Um, unfortunately, not as much about Scotland. Um, but the, but but, any, but I think a lot of the problems and why the left stabbed itself in the foot over Brexit was an abhorrence of the nation and a retreat from the national terrain and a sense that any engagement which is about us, about what we want for our society is going to be de facto reactionary, uh, xenophobic, uh, nationalistic and an ethnic sort of uh, conception. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, I, I tried to tie those together a bit in the piece, at least in reference to the sorts of demographics that were out protesting in Europe, at least from what I could judge and from uh, friends in, in Europe that I spoke to who were able to give me a bit more of a sense um, of what the global BLM was like, uh, which is that it's the demographics who are generally young, uh, happen to be white, but obviously in white majority countries that probably doesn't say very much, um, but tend to be kind of well-educated, higher cultural capital living in, in large cities. And that tends to be, that has become over um, recent years, over the past decade or something, uh, a demographic that is uh, probably struggling to a certain extent economically, downwardly mobile, um, and therefore more left-wing than its antecedents were 10, 20, 30 years ago, um, but at the same time are more cosmopolitan and have a, a, rejection of, uh, a rejection of the nation, which 
for me, I think it's really a way of rejecting one's own working class of saying, no, I don't have anything to do with the nation. I inhabit this kind of global world. I'm a global citizen. Uh, who are, are the people that you hate there? Of course, you know, not, it's not explicitly, it's not explicitly said because you're not allowed to hate in, in our kind of postmodern times, you know? Um, but there's always a kind of a, a coded hatred there. And it's a hatred for, uh, you know, as, as the, I don't particularly like this way of, of putting it, but you know, the somewheres uh, versus the anywheres, um, you know, it's a hatred of the somewheres. Uh, it's a hatred of any kind of one, anyone who's kind of rooted in any way. Um, and, you know, I think that to, to engage with rootedness doesn't mean to say that we should stay in place. In fact, the whole, my, what I would be proposing would be that we should try to transcend uh, the identities into which we're, we're fixed. Um, to not just be victims, but be subjects and be agents to kind of get beyond um, the situations into which we're put, indeed to be internationalists and not to be stuck within the nation. But you need to start somewhere. And I think that's that's the, the important point. It's about starting points, not where necessarily you end up. And the starting point has to be an engagement with uh, the nation, which that with that imagined community, which like it or not, is where we are, is what we're structured into, is what we're socialized into. Um, and that, that's something that can't just be escaped through an act of imagination, um, pretending that we're, uh, you know, pretending that we're American in, in, in the specific case that we're talking about. So there's like that kind of idea of like the citizen of nowhere um, is like, that's the, that's the sense that I get from that. Um, I think that you raise an interesting point about like um, Brexit. Um, I mean, I think that like, this was the issue that, destroyed Corbyn's chances at the last general election was on Brexit. Um, you know, the anti-Semitism allegations and the continual hounding by the media definitely played a part, but it was the Brexit policy. And, you know, you only have to look at what happened to the Scottish Labour Party um, in the aftermath of the referendum. This is the party that's dominated Scotland for 100 years, um, completely wiped out like in such a short space of time, um, which is still to me is like a phenomenal occurrence that, you know, you go from every councillor, every MSP, every MP, like just dominated by the Labour Party and within a very short space of time, they are gone, like wiped out apart from one in the 2015 election. But this is partly because the Labour Party can't deal with the nation state. They can't deal with nationalism either. Like the I've always found that in the Labour Party, so Brexit, I think, is more about an Englishness. I think that obviously the vote in Scotland, I don't think that that says much about Scotland. And there's lots of reasons it's framed through the national lens. There's, um, con there's It's framed through the constitution. So Scotland can't have a meaningful vote on Europe until it's independent. Like that's that would be my view, like it's not really meaningful. But Brexit and the way it was conducted is really about English nationalism. And the left and the centre left, particularly, have always preferred to say that they are British and the British Labour Party, even if it means invading other countries for oil, they'd rather say they were British than go anywhere close to Englishness. I always think of that Emily Thornberry tweet. Um, <laughs> I can't remember, like in the lead up to Brexit, where she took a photo of the white van and the England yeah, flag, yeah. like, look what our country's become. They're terrified of Englishness. Um, yeah, just yeah. like the Scottish Labour Party were terrified of Scottishness. Like it's it's a huge problem for the for the Labour Party and the Labour left as well. Yeah. I think it's I mean the, the problem that Labour has is it's not even just nationalism, it's the national question more broadly. Like um so like what you were saying there about Brexit, that this this to me has been the recurring misunderstanding of the European Union on the left in many ways the most important misunderstanding is that for the left for many people on the liberal left they projected onto this um their attitude about you know a, a cosmopolitan seamless international community of people not unfairly and painfully fractured by dangerous national grievances um it, the european union is not even a genuine transnational organization it's a meeting place for the ruling elites of Europe's nations. You know, Europe's nations have been um, dissipated. You know, you used to get all these kind of things like Hart and Negri, Empire, it's the end of the nation state as we know, know it and so on. One of the big political lessons of the early part of the 21st century is the nation state is still the fundamental unit of global capitalism, 
like you know the fundamental geographical unit of global capitalism there's an extreme limit to which you can enter into a genuinely transnational form of capitalism but in the meantime when an institution like the european union um can be used to structure european politics in that way what you have is 20 Asian, 28 nation states all with internal particular particularities but also all with their internal class structures and the European Union is being used to benefit the ruling elites of each independent country and to separate out the interests of the working class in each independent country. So Greece is a perfect example. The, the, the Greek ruling class, enabled by the European Union, using the structures of the European Union, committed a series of hideous crimes upon the working class uh, people in Greece. That's what the transnationalism of, of the European Union actually looks like. But when the left approached the European Union question, it did so with this class blindness, which was fueled by their nation state blindness, because yeah. they couldn't see the individual national questions in each country. They couldn't see the ensemble of class relations in each particular society. They, they had transformed their view of capitalist society from one based on classes with conflicts, with inequality and inequalities of power and wealth and so on into a binary question of the nation state as a reactionary institution, cosmopolitan transnationalism as a progressive ideology and the clash between these two forces. But that clash was taking place only in the heads of the left. It wasn't going on anywhere else, you know, and there's a lot of stuff like that in contemporary politics where the left is locked in this um, in this kind of twilight struggle with fantastical and dangerous forces like fascism and nationalism and creeping fascism and all this kind of stuff. And they have divorced themselves completely from the real political relationships, the real class relationships and so on that, that actually structure their societies. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, that sense of being haunted, I think, is um, something that's so prevalent and so problematic on the left. I mean, I think even those who on the left, the liberal left, who recognize the fact that the EU was uh, no friend of the common man <laughs> or woman and that there was uh, and that, you know, this is something that probably should be opposed. But, you know, maybe uh, not now, not like this, maybe down further down the road. Um, you know, there was still a, obviously there, there was in that an evasion um, and it was based, I think, on a, on a kind of um, instinctive reaction against especially in the, in the kind of British discussion, maybe even more in the English discussion than the Scottish one of Tory England, that this was Tory England's revenge and that a, a complete lack of sense of the dynamism of politics, that this was a moment and something to be seized upon, um, that Brexit, of course, is not going to be a, you know, even seeing it as Brexit as a potential fait accompli, which you just accept as, um, as progress or not, that you make a decision on, but rather something that could be seized and led. Um, was something that was was abandoned. I mean, that, that was there was no conception of the fact that yeah, maybe you do have Nigel Farage leading Brexit, but why don't you contest that leadership? Um, there was no attempt to contest that leadership because it was treated uh, already in advance as something that was an emanation of a reactionary mindset and that therefore could never be seized. And so I think even those who on the British left who might have been convinced otherwise very quickly gave up the ghost and assume that, well, it's all is lost. You know, we can't go back, we can't rally behind this uh, reactionary uh, force and formation behind Brexit, because that would be to support all the worst people in, in, in British, in, you know, in British politics. I'm not even sure they're the worst people in British politics. They're up there with, uh, they're up there with the pro-EU people. They're both the worst. Um, so that, you know, so, but rather than seizing that as an, an opportunity for rupture, um, and indeed for an, a re-engagement with the nation and an attempt a possibility and opening to repaint a picture of what Britain might be or England, depending on uh, your conception, uh, that ground was evacuated and completely abandoned to, uh, to, to the right, effectively, to, to seize the, the, the Brexit point. Um, even to the extent that, you know, Boris Johnson, by no means a populist in any sense, and I, yeah, I really, I was just reading something about an analysis of, of Brazilian politics and said, you know, even a populist like Boris Johnson, like that, yeah, Boris Johnson's not a populist. The whole point is that the ground of populism and that upsurge was left so open that it allowed a patrician like Boris Johnson to swoop in and 
do this, let's get Brexit done thing. And then, you know, I mean, he's obviously not a populist in any, in any real sense of the word, um, but the ground was left so open um, really by the, by the left's failure to seize the moment that it allowed even a Boris Johnson uh, to, to kind of pose as a decisive, uh, a decisive and popular, you know, figure. Um, I mean, I was going to bring up a, a theory that I have <laughs> following reading your article, which is essentially the, the Black Lives Matter movement um, really rescued intersectional feminism from a very legitimate and pointed critique following, um, you know, Liz Warren and Kamala Harris got like, well, the way that Liz Warren behaved in generally towards like Sanders and the Bernie bros and all that. Um, but the likes of Judith Butler and the women who coined the term intersectional uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, yeah. you know, donated to Kamala Harris and Liz Warren um, and that Black Lives Matter actually, like that happening at that point allowed intersectional feminism, like to, not to rehabilitate itself, but it certainly helped dodge a, a very legitimate critique that it deserved to see and what it's what's happened is that it's just then reproduced the status quo in the democratic establishment yeah that's my theory yeah no i think that's right but i think maybe you could also look at it the other way i'm not, and not to the exclusion of the way that you put it but also that the whole um left uh no how do you put it i guess the whole assemblage of postmodern liberal identity politics um of effectively hyper individualism surges at exactly the moment when left populism fails. Um, so, I, I mean, is it purely by chance that that the global BLM happens right after, you know, what is it, uh, five months, six months after Corbyn's, what, what it was in effect, final defeat? Um, does it, that it happens three, two months after uh, Bernie Sanders bows out of the race? Now, there's obviously problems with the left populism insofar as it conjoined at the hip the two very different forces of a kind of a, a left economic populism with uh, this liberal individualism, with the, with the cultural left. And it never really, that confrontation was never really forced. Um, it ended up sinking the Corbyn ship because uh, the way that that liberal politics took shape in Britain was not so much with identity politics, but with pro-EU uh, kind of remainer sentiment. And that was sunk the Corbyn ship that way. Um, but for Bernie Sanders, you know, there's an interpretation that that the kind of middle class domination of, of the kind of Bernie Sanders uh, campaign and to a certain extent, the, the, the kind of identity politics inflections of some of it ended up putting people off and wasn't able to, uh, to, to see Bernie Sanders through. I don't think that's a whole story. I think that the, the kind of reasons that Bernie Sanders didn't succeed um, has, a, has a whole bunch of other reasons, one of which maybe just to, to kind of kind of do with this, mention this as a tangent, um, was his rallying behind anti-fascism as the get Trump out at all costs. Um, and when that became the stakes, not a transformation of American society or even just um, a, a rescuing of the American working class um, from, from, from the pits of, uh, of, of kind of the, the, the pandemic depression, but also just a long-term decline. Um, when it became about getting Trump out at all costs, then I think most like those Democratic voters, people who are registered Democrats voting in a lot of those primaries, which the ones which aren't open primaries anyway, uh, voted for the safe pair of hands, an establishment figure to defeat Trump rather than uh, take any chances with a populist experiment like uh, like Bernie in the way that they were willing to in 2016 uh, against a very dislikable Hillary. Um, but anyway, so I mean, whatever the specific national case of Corbyn, of, uh, of Sanders, of, you know, also, maybe even Podemos's uh, entry into government with the center left, which is kind of disappointing. You know, it's better than the alternatives, maybe, of of, uh, of complete defeat at the polls. But you know, really now being pushed into fourth place in Spain, um, just the whole left populist wave uh, being defeated, and whether people were conscious of that or not, I think at least those sections of of uh, those people kind of integrated into the kind of left populist assemblage, but certainly on the liberal uh, liberal wing of that, um, found something else to do immediately after its defeat. So I think there's definitely a, a kind of coincidence there, which is important. It's relevant, and it also relates to where we started off this conversation, which was talking about 2012, uh, which was kind of after the Occupy moment, what emerges immediately after this kind of fourth wave feminism 
um, which uh, seemed to kind of come out of absolutely nowhere and was kind of this kind of cultural wars formation, which didn't really engage with what was at stake right then, still in the immediate post-global financial crisis years um, with the beginning of austerity politics and the opposition to austerity, it seemed to completely uh, not engage with any of the issues that really matter to people. Um, and this seems to kind of repeat that process, almost as if like, if, if the left doesn't have seize the moment when it has this moment, whether it's immediately after the global financial crisis or with a kind of left populist moment between 2015 to 2019, um, that immediately you get this kind of liberal specter, um, almost kind of cannibalizing the left immediately after. I think that's really interesting. And I, I think that, and what your article does and, and, and the argument we're having right now, what I hope it does, uh, what it lays the basis for is to, um, to formalize, you know, what this phenomenon is in ideological terms as part of a battle of ideas that more radical tendencies on the left can actually engage in. Because I think there's a, you know, I remember all those, you know, years ago in 2012, as you say, thinking, being kind of exhausted by it and thinking, this is irrational. You cannot argue with it. Like, mm -hmm. There's no way to de defeat it in kind of formal terms or even necessarily to understand it in, in, in formal terms. It was like, uh, it was like mass hysteria. I remember thinking, you know, even if it was only mass in the sense that it was taking place in uh, circles of that amounted to a few thousand people that kind of as the as the student movement was being defeated it became more and more fanatical you know more and more people were be in the student inside the student movement were being sort of cancelled and so on though again that wasn't the phrase at the time but there were rounds of kind of persecution and you know increasingly kind of paranoid views that emerged from this form of politics and just thinking you can't fight this. Like this is an irrational human kind of impulse. And agree, I agree with you. At the time that 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 Mark Fisher article came out, I thought, ah, it, it's ebbing. You know, you can, it, it can be uh, it can be broken down. And then these repeated resurgences every few years. I think we've talked about this a bit on Twitter about how this is partly a condition of like the left being post-traditional in the sense that it doesn't have. The kind of organizational uh, infrastructure that it once did it doesn't have the same kind of uh, levels of discourse between different generational layers like if you, if you could imagine being a member of the labor left or the communist party or something like that in the 1960s and 70s you would be in a direct conversation with militants from the 1920s and 1930s right in the last 20 years in the time that i've been involved in left-wing politics that those kind of structures and those sorts of traditions have broken down and that type of conversation has broken down completely. And what's replaced it is repeated waves of the same kind of failed ideas. They rise up, they fizzle out, they die off. And then a few years later, they emerge again with no institutional memory that these ideas have already come and gone and failed. So yeah. a classic example would be like horizontalism, which you often find in tandem with a kind of very kind of identity moralistic politics this idea we can't have structures um because this will lead to stalin or, or something right that idea is a disaster every single time it's organized and advanced every single time without fail it rapidly kills off whatever social movement has embraced the idea two or three years later another social movement emerges with no institutional memory of that total collapse and defeat and rapidly re-engages with it Thus, you know, and, and, and the problem is, it's like, that's a self-cannibalizing tendency because it kills off any opportunity to reconstruct institutional memory or movement memory or, you know, anything like that. And in a sense, that kind of really aggressive, paranoid, liberal identity politics does the same thing. It literally kind of eats its own children to such yeah. an extent that there's no one left to transmit that this stuff is a is a total disaster, and on the, on the same level, I've never known it not to be a disaster. I've never known that politics to reemerge and not cannibalize everyone involved with it, in it within about six months. Had Black Lives Matter in Britain um, had the opportunity, but things are very skewed because of the pandemic and the lockdown conditions and so on. Had it semi-institutionalized and tried to continue as a kind of mass street level movement you would have seen those same cycles, those same cycles of kind of, uh, of, of, of sort of destruction. Yeah. 
No, and it, you get these kind of like manic depressiveness effect, collective manic depression, which is, uh, you know, because it's so ephemeral, uh, because it doesn't take any institutional form, which can give continuity to certain ideas um, and to make those ideas confront the experiences of people uh, older who are able to communicate those experiences uh, and, make, and make and actually kind of produce a productive uh, dialogue and indeed to kind of put people's feet on the ground and kind of make sense of, of the world. And, uh, you know, you just turn up with a new idea and then you say, well, well actually, you know, we discussed this, you know, 20 years ago and it didn't work. It's like, oh, okay, well, that at least... Uh, you know, tempers my enthusiasm, um, and that which doesn't sound good, but actually, no, tempering enthusiasm is important because that is precisely is a way of avoiding the sort of manic depressive um, sort of cycles that you have, where you need to seize that ephemeral moment of whatever it might be, um, because suddenly you have people's attention. You know, you're there, kind of uh, arguing maybe with your friends or your smaller circle. Uh, your left-wing ideas and no one's paying attention suddenly the world's paying attention because something happens and you need to seize on that moment um, otherwise it'll all disappear because it, again it doesn't take any kind of organizational form uh, and when that starts to ebb away you can already feel the kind of deflation of the balloon and the rancor that that produces and then it, you fall into depression and everyone's kind of uh, i mean just following kind of british politics now after the defeat of corbyn seems completely uh, like everyone's kind of depressed and um falling back into all the terrible minoritarian tendencies, um, whether that be kind of horizontalism, uh, anything that basically evades the question of power. Um, and, it's, and it's kind of ironic because again, you have this um, kind of valence of exaggeration um, and then deficit where there was too much of a focus on power, most likely with left populism, this drive to like, let's gain state power. You're not really gaining state power, you're winning an election. But you know, let's take hold of, of, of the executive and maybe the legislature in, in parliamentary systems. Um, let's go, let's, let's make a direct seizure of it without really having built up uh, many organizations on the ground to really sustain that. But you know, cool, go for it. See, what, see where that leads to maybe um, the, you know, the actually holding political office, um, the left holding political office will at least open up uh, new possibilities. Maybe they'll be able to repeal anti-union legislation, which will make it easier to organize in the future. Whatever you know, maybe something comes of it. Um, it's a wager. Uh, it's a, it's you know it's it's a complete um, you know they're betting on that possibility without really any sense of that necessarily producing the results that they imagine. But you know, I think it's actually worth worth going for, right? Um, but it becomes it becomes in a kind of almost obsessive um, fixation on gaining power and talking about elections and which was which was exciting you know if you remember back to like 2015 2016 suddenly people are talking about actually winning the left actually winning it's like well this is great this is not the left wallowing in its own marginality creating ever newer subcultures um kind of satisfied in its alterity while at the same time um you know lamenting the fact that not really able to go anywhere um and therefore remaining this relationship where authority effectively you know the kind of the establishment is always in power and we're always saying you know hey fuck you you know and, and just kind of remaining in that kind of adolescent relationship um with regard to political power hey that's being overcome and now we're re-engaging with political power we're talking about winning elections we're talking about what we might do and what policies we might enact and it became almost a, a too narrow fixation on kind of not just electoral politics i'm not i'm not i don't want to be seen to be critical of electoral politics um but on the on politics in the narrow sense of the word in terms of the the, the kind of agencies and offices of state um, as the kind of sum total of politics and so again that's another sense where you get a kind of an exaggeration and then a, and then a recession again it's like a wave coming coming in and out um, and it's actually not by chance that one of the sections in, in the alpha bunga bunga book um, is actually we called it the wave pool because um, it exactly is that it's like you're you know you like one of these um, aqua parks or whatever right where you have a wave pool and so you know you get oh another big wave coming you know and it crashes and then actually un not only is it just a, a repeated sequence of uh of a wave cresting and crashing which uh can be demoralizing enough but you know unlike in uh, unlike in nature where a wave the, the success the succession of waves crashing against the shore actually transforms the shore um there's an actual geological kind of impact in a wave pool nothing happens because it's constructed just to kind of keep going over and over um in the simulation of of politics but nothing actually ever changes i was going to ask if you wanted to plug the book but you've done oh, it yeah, but i just went in <laughs> <laughs> um very very interesting like i 
think we've been recording for about an hour now and we got a lot of flack um, for putting up a two-hour podcast. Um, so we should probably close it there. David, I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to add. No, just that I, I, I think all that stuff's really interesting. I'm looking forward to re reading the book because um, I think this is an interesting project. Uh, in, times, in terms of like the, the, the psychological landscape of our politics, and it's something we've discussed in this podcast a few times about the almost kind of chemical nature of modern politics, of those highs and those lows being sucked into a kind of ephemeral media cycle uh, of catastrophes and happenings that ultimately you know just reproduce you know a very similar paradigm of political events as the one that that preceded it and I think that there's a longer conversation to have about how you break those cycles and establish you know a more meaningful political trajectory um, and so yeah I'm, I'm just uh, you know glad that, that that conversation is going on and yeah it'd be, it'd be good to explore it again in future I suppose. When is your yeah. So the book will be out on the uh, 25th of June. So it's still a little while away, about seven months away. Um, but there's links on, uh, on our social media and, and so on. And uh, we'll be trailing it uh, extensively in the, in the lead up to it, to it coming out. But it, it, so it, the book itself uh, is a way of kind of bringing together all the discussions that we had on, on BungaCast over the past, well, three, four years now. Um, and to kind of give that a kind of written form uh, to move beyond the kind of ephemerality of, uh, <laughs> of discussing things on a podcast and actually give it some slightly more permanent form, which I think is a good ambition in general. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and we'd love to have you back on closer to the time um, or any of your other friends from the podcast. Um, but thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us tonight. Um, we, we should sum up. David, do we have any announcements? Connor Cash related announcements? I, we're going to try and have a, a, a rapid fire of uh, podcasts coming out before Christmas. Uh, so look forward to that promise being uh, abandoned. Broken. <laughs> yeah, being broken between here and now. Um, just to say to subscribe to the YouTube account, to the SoundCloud account, you know, just subscribe generally, share it generally. Um, that's all, I think. We don't have a book to announce at this point. Maybe one day, you never know. Um, but yeah, yeah, just, uh, yeah, do share.